G'day everyone, my name's Dave McDonald, I'm a pastor here at SALT. If you're visiting with us, uh, you might be thinking, what on earth have you come to? Uh, here we are speaking on a very sensitive topic, the topic of divorce. Well, let me explain why. Uh, the reason is because uh, for over a year now, we've been working through the Matthews, uh, Matthew's account of Jesus. Uh, we started around about last Christmas, looking at uh, the Christmas narrative, and we've dipped into it a few times, and this is where we're up to. And so as we look at it, uh, we are presented with a whole range of issues that Jesus thought it was worth speaking about. Um, I, I did say to uh, Nathan and Katie that I, I required a 45-minute slot uh, for this, and um, the, the response was, what, 45 minutes for a sermon? And I said, no, I'll try and include a time for questions as part of that, and uh, my phone number is going to go up there. So if you want to text any questions through uh, during this sermon, we will allow a bit of time afterwards. But I've revised the plan. It won't be 45 minutes. It'll now be an hour and 45 minutes. So if you need to phone home and get them to keep the crock pot on for longer, uh, do that. Uh, we might need to keep the kids in a little bit longer as well. We'll see how we go. Um, this is a, a, a topic that's really quite difficult. Uh, I think it's difficult because there is a lot of complexity in this passage alone, let alone trying to piece this together with the rest of the Bible on the topic of marriage and divorce and so on. It, it's made uh, even more difficult by the headings in some of the English Bibles. So the NIV at the start of this just says divorce, as though that's the topic of what's going on. The ESV says teaching about divorce but I'll show you that it's not technically right to say this is on divorce or even teaching about divorce. Maybe a little closer is the Christian Standard Bible that says questions about divorce or even the New Living Translation discussion about divorce and marriage. Um, I, I thought after Nathan spoke last week and he gave us that wonderful golfing illustration that I should give you one as well. Um, that is, I'm going to tell you why Jesus is not playing golf. What he's doing is playing tennis. See, if he was playing golf, he'd just take his teaching, he'd put it on the tee, and he'd whack it out for all those who are ready to hear. But he's playing tennis. See, he's answering questions. There's questions that have been fired at him, so he has to work out whether to play a backhand or whether to play a forehand. And what we're seeing is not Jesus teaching on these subjects, we're seeing Jesus' answers to questions on these subjects. You see, if Jesus was asked to give a lecture on what the Bible says about marriage, he would have a lot more to say. And there are many other parts of the Bible that we see what Jesus and others under the influence of the Holy Spirit had to say, and this is not going to be everything. So, a little heads up, you will go away from here frustrated if you want everything to be answered. Secondly, uh, what we see when we look at this is that there's a complexity around various issues in the passage itself. See, what does it mean when it speaks about divorce? In Australia, we have a particular understanding of divorce. It's a legal status that allows a person to remarry. That's pretty much what it is. You don't get that status until one year after you have separated but it basically means that after a separation, now with no, no fault prescribed since the Whitlam government in 1975, now you can separate 
and remarry, but you can't remarry unless you have actually been divorced. So what it is, it's, it's a legal status that enables a person to remarry. But for us to read that back into this passage would be wrong. The words that are used in the original here for divorce are much closer to our word of separation. That is to let someone go or to send someone off. There's no legal status involved here. But we will see that there is something called a bill of divorce. And I'll say a little more about that when we get to it. There are other issues here. What does it mean for except for sexual immorality? Uh, the word for sexual immorality here is the wor word in Greek porneia, from which we get pornography. It's a very broad word. And what does it mean except for? Is it giving a particular condition? Well, one of the problems is that the original doesn't have the word except, it has the word not. Is that being used in the sense of except or just not in this case? Well, I'm not going to uh, try and disturb you with the complexity of understanding some of these difficult issues. I want to kind of aim for the centre lane today. There'll be all sorts of things that you might veer to the left and veer to the right, and there might be questions that you have, and I'm more than happy for you to text them in, and we'll have a little bit of a time for questions at the end. Let's have a look then at what's going on. This is a Q&A primarily. And the primary people that are involved in this Q&A are the Pharisees. Now, we've met the Pharisees before in the Gospel of Matthew. A number of chapters back, they set out to kill him. So when it says some Pharisees came to him to test him, you know that it's not a genuine question. They're out to get him. Also, they ask him a question where they're really setting him up to fail. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? We understand a little bit from outside the Bible. In first century history, there were two major rabbis. There was Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, and they had very different views about divorce. One, that is Shammai, was saying, no, only if there's really serious stuff taking place. Whereas Hillel was much more liberal. That is, if your wife burnt the dinner, or if you just found another woman who you found more attractive than the first, divorce was permissible. And so are they asking Jesus to determine which of these schools of thought is the right one, and he's either going to be satisfying one and not the other, or he's going to upset both? No, I don't think so. I think there's another issue that we don't need to know any extra First Testament history to understand. And that is, look at where it's happening. You see in verse 1, Jesus had finished saying these things. He left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea, the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed and he healed them there. What has already happened in Judea? Well, from reading through Matthew, you know that John the Baptist was preaching in Judea. And you know that John the Baptist made an issue of the divorce and remarriage of Herod, and it cost him his head, literally. I think the Pharisees are setting up Jesus for the same kind of dangerous, lethal mistake that they saw John the Baptist make. Whatever it is, they aren't asking genuine questions. 
They're trying to trap and trick Jesus. And we need to take that on board. We'll look at Jesus' response in a second. And the disciples, they're the other questioner in this regard. And that is, they've been listening in on the discussion that's taken place between the Pharisees and uh, Jesus. And they think, well, Jesus has not made this look easy, this being married thing. So wouldn't we better be better off then not to get married at all? And then Jesus says, well, there are some that can accept that, but not all. Well, let's look more closely then at the questions and Jesus' answers. Because Jesus' answers, as he so often does, take us to the heart of the issue. The Pharisees are dodgy, but Jesus doesn't get sucked in to their kind of death trap question. He takes it as an opportunity to present a good forehand back down the line. And they need to notice what Jesus is doing, and so do we. They ask a question about whether it's lawful to divorce a wife for any and every reason. Jesus goes not to the issue of divorce, but to the very core matter of the heart, and that is marriage itself. And he says, haven't you read, which basically means you guys ought to know better. These were the experts in the Bible. He takes them back to page one and page two. That is, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. God made them to have male and female that they might leave the father and mother, be united to the wife, and the two become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What's Jesus' answer to the question of divorce? It's to say that God made marriage and God marries people to stay married. So they're asking a question, what are the circumstances under which you should get divorced? And Jesus is saying, no, no, there's a bigger issue here. It's what does marriage look like? What should it be like? And he takes to the heart of what God had set up. And we still use this language today. I'm a marriage celebrant. It's one of the things that the government have given me permission to do. And in the marriage service, I quote these words from Matthew 19. And I finish with this, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The word for separate here, it's the same word for divorce. Back in verse 3. In other words, it's the husband and the wife that are the primary focus of that statement. I guess I'd often thought that it was the guests at the wedding. You know, just like you say, does anyone have any reason why this couple shouldn't be married? And you just hope nobody's going to put up their hand and, and you make a little bit of a joke of it, saying it's all good to go. And I've tend to thought of it as let no one separate, as being let no one get in the way, let no one interfere. But Jesus' point here, I take it, is let the husband and the wife remain lovingly committed to each other. That's God's purpose, because it's God who joins together. He doesn't join temporarily. In fact, the Australian marriage service, even though the Australian law has changed in recent years to reflect marriage between any two parties, it's still for life. It reflects the Bible in being a permanent, committed relationship. That's what God intends. God doesn't intend people to be uh, making promises to each other with their hands tied behind their back. 
He doesn't want people to be committing to something so long as it still feels good. Now, God's actually setting up something for our good that is intended to be permanent. And so then, the next question, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, it seems like God is contradicting himself. If he's made marriage to be permanent, why then would God command people to divorce? Well, Jesus has uh, a couple of issues with this. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, arguably, verse 9 is the most complicated and difficult verse in this whole chapter. I read uh, a very reputable, uh, wonderful scholar on Matthew, a guy called Don Carson. He lists the eight best options as to what verse 9 means, with all kinds of extra footnotes and bibliography to go with it. There are so many different issues here, but I don't think we need to nail down everything to see that the centre line is saying that God created marriage but permits divorce because we're sinful. Because we have hard hearts. In other words, God's design is that people, man, woman, husband, wife, remain in a committed, loving, permanent relationship. But he knows that sinful people will tear apart. Sometimes there's a clear person who has done wrong. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it is both people, quite clearly, who admit to not being able to make it work. But that wasn't God's design, that was God's permission. It's interesting the way the Pharisees have actually twisted the word of God. What they're doing is they're picking up on Deuteronomy 24. I've printed it in your outlines. Now, the way that Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 work, and I'll give you the structure, is like this. If, 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 then. So that's the structure, if, 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 then. Listen to me and I'll try and read it to reflect that. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. That's the first if. And if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. Or, here's the third if, if he dies, then. So if these things happen, right, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would then be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. So what it's saying basically is, if Bob marries Mary and then divorces Mary, and Mary then marries John, and John divorces Mary, or dies, then Bob is not free to marry Mary again. That's what this passage is about. In fact, it's in a chapter that has a whole heap of random laws. It's not in a significant, important, main focus teaching on marriage. 
It's just a particular circumstance. Now, it's not a common circumstance, but it's a notorious one. You think about people like um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. There you've got Elizabeth Taylor, married to Richard Burton, then married to who knows, and then who knows, and then who knows, and then Richard Burton again, and then somebody else, and so on. It's to that kind of situation. In fact, I looked up celebrity remarriages, and there's some classics out there, I can tell you. Elon Musk is an interesting one as well, as is Pamela Anderson. But not to uh, distract our thoughts. So the point here that he's making is, again, a heart issue. And that is, he's saying that God knows that we are sinful. God knows that our hearts are hard. And so he permits divorce or separation in this case. So there are two problems here, the hard-heartedness, and he talks about sexual immorality. And so in the case of these things, there might be reasons why there is to be a separation. But there's not to be then a, a remarriage if they've married somebody else. Now, we won't go down that rabbit hole. It's a pretty complicated one. But then finally, in verse 10, the disciples contribute and they say, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, then it's better not to marry. Why do they say that? I, I think because Jesus is saying that marriage is intended to be permanent and you're not to be flippant about divorce. That is, you need to work at it. You need to commit yourself to the relationship. Um, therefore, they are saying, well, maybe it's just better to stay single. And Jesus' reply, again, it's a little enigmatic. He says, not everyone can accept this word, which I think is talking about what they've said, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, eunuchs who were born this way, I think probably what's on view here are people who were born without clear sexual distinction. That is, they, they, for the most part, would have double X or XY chromosomes, but their genitalia aren't clearly formed. And there is a percentage of our population for whom that's true, and there's a whole number of variations of that. And so when you get the LGBTQI, the intersex, that would be a part of this but there'd be more that would probably be in mind as well. And he's saying some are born that way and they may not be able to be in a normal sexual relationship or to be able to procreate in a normal sexual relationship. Some are born that way. Some have been made that way by others. And there were various reasons why people were made eunuchs. Um, it could take a variety of forms. We won't get into the graphic details of that, but it's painful. Um, I can, well, I was going to say I can assure you, just from what I've read, that is. Um, and uh, there were reasons that, that, you know, it might have been that somebody was involved in looking after a king's harem or someone, and so they were not to be sexually active. So there, there might have been a punishment by law or other things. And then there are those um, who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think there's a metaphor that's going on here. I think it's the same way that when Jesus back in the Sermon on the Mount says it's better to pluck out your eye and to chop off your hand. He's not literally saying to do it. 
It's a metaphor, I think, for singleness. That is, he's saying that some will choose this way of life for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I think we need to hear that because he's saying there's something more important than marriage and divorce and remarriage and that something is the kingdom of heaven. He's made that very clear throughout, that, that the kingdom of heaven is what we are to seek after, to seek first God's kingdom. And he's been teaching about that over recent chapters. Well, that's a, that's a basic introduction to what he's been saying, but what do we do with that? What can we learn from that? Bearing in mind, this is not Jesus' golf swing on the topic, this is returning a few different questions, all right? What do we make of it? Well, there's some clear things that I think we can take hold of, and that is Jesus' view of God's design for humanity. Um, Jesus has a perspective on who we are and what we're made for. The Word of God teaches about human identity. That is, we have been made as sexual beings. We've been made male and female. Now, sometimes that's difficult to work out. There is intersex issues. But primarily, and we're talking about 99% plus of the population, we are either male or female, and God designed that. It's not just a, a, a mental significance. It's not just what I feel I really am in my being. It's God's intention that people are male and female. And that is, sex and gender in the Bible are aligned. And... Sex in the Bible that God has designed is heterosexual. It's male and it's female. And the place for sex is within the committed, permanent, loving, monogamous relationship of marriage. Now, there are all kinds of anomalies. There are all kinds of sinful anomalies as well. Different ways that people can turn their back on God's teaching but we need to see that God, in his grace, in his goodness, created a good world. In fact, he says it's very good, back in Genesis chapter 1, of male and female. He's made us the same, that is, we are human, but different. We are different sex. And he's done that deliberately, and it's for our good. And so what can we take from that? Well, I think we need to be marriage-affirming. We need to be supportive of marriage because God is. Marriage is copying a massive critique in the West and world. Um, it's being undermined on so many different fronts. I think we need to be investing in marriages. If you're married, start at home. I need to invest in my marriage. If you're not married, then Think about the relationships that you have with people around about you who are married. Pray for them, support them, encourage them. Um, if you're looking to be married, then think into the nature of what God wants marriage to be. That is, he wants it to be God joining you together with another person that you will love and be committed to. We see as we, we look at this that... Um, there are all kinds of different issues, but there will be sinful matters that will pull at a marriage. And I think it's one of um, Satan's strategies. 
is to tear at marriages because there's so much collateral damage when that happens. Um, I think Satan loves to stop marriages uh, working and to turn us inward upon ourselves. And if we want to look again at what it is that will make a marriage work, one of the key things is what Jesus has just said. And that is what we looked at last week. See, immediately before this passage in Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I think it's seven or eight times now I've preached this passage at a wedding. And I will typically say something like, um, if Jack and Jill, right, they're the couple, uh, Sorry, I just got distracted by pails of water and other things. But um, if, if, uh, if Jack comes to Jesus and says, how many times do I need to forgive Jill? Jesus is basically saying, always. Keep at it. It's a great passage to preach at a wedding because it's the substance of taking sinful people and helping them to reunite. Where there's confession where there's repentance, where there's forgiveness. But I imagine as, uh, as we've been looking at this, some of you are, are finding this perhaps more hard than others. Some of you might be thinking, well, I know what divorce is like because I've been there. Maybe you've been there more than once. Maybe it's your mother or your father. Or maybe a sister or a brother or a close friend. See, this is not theory, is it? I don't think there'd be a person in this room for whom this is theory. We, we've all felt it. We all know it. And we know it hurts and it's painful. And for that reason... It's really important to hear what Jesus says in the context of the scriptures as a whole. Sadly, churches have been known as places that are particularly difficult for divorcees. It can be hard to attend church as a single mum, as a single dad. It can be difficult if people know that your marriage is broken down. It can be tough if you're going through struggles and separation and divorce. How do we relate to each other? How do we talk about these things? And the reality is so often we can't. So often we, we don't speak up because it would be wrong to speak of, of the struggles, whatever those struggles might be, in the privacy of our own marriage to take them into the body of the church, to speak up about these things. So often things just kind of get dealt with on our own or maybe privately with, with one or two others. But church, I believe, should be the place for divorcees. It should be the best place for somebody who's made a complete mess of their marriage or somebody who has been abused or received harsh treatment in their marriage. It should be the most safe place to be. Because... 
God is a God of grace. And God knows that we struggle and he knows that we fail. He knows what's been our fault. He knows what's been their fault. He knows what's been both our faults. He knows if we're struggling with our second marriage, our third, or if we just can't face the idea of marriage because of what we've seen or experienced from others. But Jesus' teaching can seem strict, can't it? If we look at what it's saying, it's saying that to divorce is to commit adultery. It doesn't say it specifically in this passage clearly, but we read it in the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It says back in, in chapter 5 and verse 31, if anyone divorces his wife, um, he must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And if we're not quite sure what particulars are adultery, then go back a few verses where he said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus is not one to liberalise and make more lax the standard. He makes it very clear that he expects perfection. God is a perfect God. But he's a perfect God who accepts sinful people because his son Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for all of our uncleanness, all of our sin, all of our harshness, all of our hurts, all of our pain. And so Jesus is the heavenly father welcoming us home to be with him. See, as we look at a passage like this, I, th I think we do well to remember the words of John in, in 1 John chapter 2. Let me read them to you. 1 John chapter 2 and the first couple of verses. I used to have 1 John in my Bible. Yeah, it's still there. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. We need to take that to heart. I write this to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not commit adultery, so that you will not lust, so that you will not be greedy, so that you will not envy, so you will not do harm to another person. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God doesn't want us to sin, but if we do sin, Jesus has paid the price. We can live as forgiven sinners. God calls us to confess our sin, to come to him, to receive forgiveness, and to work out our relationships under him. I know that for some of us, it can seem so difficult, so hard. It's such a struggle. And it's not always fully dependent on us. Sometimes there can be one who wants something and the other who wants something else. God says, 
Commit yourself to your marriage. Love your wife. Love your husband. Confess your sin. Be willing to forgive. As much as it depends upon you, reconcile, be at peace. But he knows that sometimes it's not going to work out. And so Jesus, Jesus is the one who is the advocate on our behalf. He's the one who has paid the price. He is the one through whom there is forgiveness. I think I've kind of got close to running out of time. I, I just wanted just to drop something, like a little bomb, before I run out. And by the way, I've got to go straight home after this. Um, <laughs> The, sometimes the air that we breathe culturally at the moment, right, it, it's, it's the air of dismantling uh, gender boundaries, uh, traditional understandings of marriage and so on. Um, come the time of the Mardi Gras and Pride Week, there, there's a, a kind of pile on everywhere um, in terms of being pro-rainbow, which is difficult for a Christian who's committed to rainbow meaning something else and, and someone living at Rainbow Beach, it's kind of different again. Um, and it's sometimes thought the Bible doesn't say much about issues to do with, with um, LGBTQI. But I hope you can see that it does. Even here in this passage, by implication... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two that are male and female will become one flesh. That's not L, lesbian. That's not G, gay. Even if people say, I've been made this way. But we also see that it's not our right to determine what we want sexuality to be. Of course, we live in an age of self-determination where the greatest right, if you want to speak of rights, is the right to decide for yourself. But God is the one who decides. He's the one who makes marriage. And so it's not a right under God to choose to be bi. It's not a right under God to choose to be trans or queer. The, the breakdown of, of normal heteronormative relationships I is a little different in that list. And I personally think that I kind of lives in that list because there's a, a biological hook to hang on a tenuous understanding of the others. But as we engage with a world that has a very different viewpoint on relationships and sex, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And Jesus, in this whole discussion, I think makes it clear that the main thing is the kingdom of heaven. And, and so people need to meet God before they understand the way of God. People need to receive the forgiveness of Jesus before they would have motivation and reason to shape their lives, their sexuality, around the things of God. And I think that and an understanding of God's grace needs to shape the way that we relate to others. Well, I'm going to pause there and I, I know um, that 
we've kind of gone to time, but I'm just going to ask Nathan if you might ask if we can just have a few more minutes with the with the kids out, um, and I'll see if there are some some questions. You you'd be free to ask a question as well, um, but I'll just have a look at my phone. Okay. I've got two questions here. What would you recommend to a person whose spouse is physically, sexually, sexually or emotionally abusive in regard to separation? I think it's um, very important that the person is able to be safe. That's the first thing. Uh, and that will likely mean stepping out of the abuse context. And it's only out of the abuse context that any of the issues are then able to be worked through and they may not be able to be worked through. But by staying in an abusive context, um, a couple of things are going on. One is great risk of harm to the person being abused and the other is um, a latent kind of acceptance that his behaviour, and it's normally his but it could be hers, is okay and it's not. It's not okay. And perpetrators need to understand it's not okay. It has to stop. It must not be tolerated. And in a Christian community, we... we, we must not hide or um, provide a context of permission for abuse of any kind. And the church has come under massive attack for this, and rightly, in recent years, because there have been way too many cover-ups. Um, so I would say the first thing is, please speak to somebody that, who is mature, Christian, that you trust. Um, if it's in the context of, of our community here, I'm happy that you might speak to me or, or a Christian that you um, feel safe with. Uh, if it's a woman, it might be better if you spoke with another woman at church. Um, if something is happening that is illegal, then the police need to be informed. Um, and if things are reported to me, uh, or a member of our church council that are illegal, they will also need to be reported to the police. And then the police will work that out. Again, there have been too many examples of churches and Christian organisations thinking, no, we'll just sort this one out for ourselves. And at best it looks like a dodgy cover-up. But at worst, it's actually not following the practice of our society and sometimes leading to people remaining in positions where they continue to do harm. And that shouldn't happen. Dave, what's the Christian way ahead for those having difficulties? One, know that you're not alone. Uh, I think there are skeletons in every marital closet. We all struggle. We all have difficulties. We all 
No, I shouldn't say we all, because I don't know all. I'll just say me. I have marital difficulties. The main one, me. Um, and what I bring to the marriage. Uh, if I'm struggling, then I think my main reason often is pride. That I think it's about me. And so I need to be reminded that I've been called to love my wife, called to put her before myself, um, called to love her, and I need the power of God's spirit and the encouragement of brothers and sisters to do that. I'm greatly helped when my wife helps me to love her. Um, if you're struggling and you don't know where to turn, again, uh, I would say, where does your help come from? Well, it comes from the Lord. Pray. Pray for God's help. Ask him to do what you're not able to do. Understand that you can change yourself, but you can't change another person. Um, maybe seek help from God's word, the, the comfort and encouragement and strength that comes from parts of God's word. Uh, if you're not sure where to turn or, or how to find help, then a mature Christian to help you to do that. Uh, if it's a situation where a, a couple together are struggling and know that they need help, then it might be a very helpful thing to meet up with a, a, a counsellor um, or somebody who's able to help you, uh, Christianly if possible, to focus on putting each other first and working through some of those difficulties. Um, there, there may be things in your life or your spouse's life uh, and we all bring baggage into our relationships that are causing things to be very, very difficult and that might be something that needs to be explored. Um, but don't feel like you need to hide and do it alone. You might not feel like publishing something so that you might limit it to one or two people that are able to support you and encourage you as you work through these things. There are some great Christian books um, in addition that help us to think about uh, how to go about being married, um, how to love our wife or our husband. Um, it might be that there are particular areas that you're struggling with, like a struggle with anger or, or a struggle with, with um, your sexual relationship. There might be different things that you want to focus on together and have help to work those things through. I think being a Christian is, is being a lifelong learner. Um, but so is being um, a husband or a wife. Uh, when Laura and Leon were married, I gave them L plates. And uh, they're not going to grow out of them, are they? No, she says. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'll just check my phone again. Yeah, um, Laura's just made the point that the, the marriage course uh, that was a facilitated evening for couples last year that involved a meal together, watching a video and, and some discussion. Uh, Laura found it brilliant. I know there's a few nods around that there were, I think it was put on for the Point Church, 
but there were four from the point and nine couples from Salt, so it really should have been. Uh, um, and Marty and Ness played a, a key role with the catering of that and other things. We, uh, we want to put on something for marriages um, in a formal sense like that. We were talking about it the other day in terms of um, having, having that on a regular rotation, which might be once every two years to do something like run the marriage course. If there's a need for it more regularly, then of course we would consider that. Um, but also when the Bible touches on things like it has today, uh, to, to use that as a point of going, let's recalibrate. Let's, let, just, let's take stock and, and um, yeah, think what, what would be good to work on. Well, good on you, folks. Um, how about I pray uh, before we, are we sing it? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that comes uh, through knowing that we don't have to perform our way to be accepted by you, but that you accept us through Christ and you forgive us our sins. We ask that you'll help us to cooperate with your spirit, to humbly invest in our relationships. Uh, we pray for those who are really struggling at the moment with broken relationships or with seriously damaged relationships. Uh, we, we pray that you'll, you'll give great encouragement and comfort, but we also ask that you might bring breakthroughs um, to reunite um, husbands and wives who are struggling. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.